Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Your horrific true crime podcast. I'm Connie, along with my sugar pie honey bun, Meg. This is episode 22, the Nickel Mines Amish School Shooting. And I'm going to let Meg take over because apparently I can't talk. It's okay. Well, it's a new thing where we've got video now. Yeah. We're trying to figure that out. It's a strange new world we're living in. Yeah. But I am busting out a gruesome first today, tonight, whenever you're listening. I love when you say that. I know. Today, tonight, whenever you're listening, we're going to talk about a school shooting. Actually, a couple. But if, if you have I know. I, it's not fun. But My if you have anything to add. type of shooting. <laughs> The kind that happens in a school. Oof. Yep. And they're kind of a U.S. phenomenon, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. We like, have the highest, pretty much the only ones, aside from Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern company, countries, companies, companies. <laughs> countries who have like terrorist, active terrorist organizations. It's yeah, that are like blowing up entire yeah, blocks and stuff. Pretty much uh, like no, you're right. And from 2009 to 2018, there were 288 school shootings. And that was 57 times more than Canada, Japan, Germany, Italy, France, and the UK combined. That is insane. They had like one or two each a year, maybe. And we had 288 in that whole time. And I think we hear about those really big cases, like yeah, I was just Columbine. Saying, I don't hearing that many? No, no, we don't, because we hear about Columbine. We hear about Sandy Hook when they're like heinous, and there's a bunch of casualties, and they're or they're all little kids. We hear about the really sensational ones, you know, U.S. media, good stuff. Um, but those shootings I was talking about that they did a study on from 09 to 18, those did not include shootings that were non-fatal. So there are still shootings happening in schools where people don't die and that it, they're not part of that. It's crazy to me because you never realize. I, I feel like I live in a bubble. Like it's some big bubble where I this is not something that I, I obviously I know that like school shootings are like it happens way more. I just know for a fact I have not heard about that many. Like that is not, they have not all been covered. Blissfully ignorant, Mm -hmm. unawares. And I mean, we live in small towns. We're from small towns. And even decades before Columbine, like school shootings were happening. So we grew up in Hartford City, which we talked about in like a bunch of other episodes before this. Mm -hmm. But Hartford City was actually the location of a school shooting that is still talked about there. Kind of. It's kind of whispered about like, oh, yeah, there was a school shooting at the elementary school. It happened in 1960. And the school that it happened in hasn't been a school since 1999. But William Reed Elementary School was vacant for a number of years. And then they transformed it into like a big apartment complex. But many decades before that, February 2nd, 1960, 44 year old Leonard Redden, he was the principal of William Reed. He walked into a fifth grade geography class and he shot the 52 year old teacher Harriet Robson in front of her 21 students. And he, the students were just like scared. What the hell? Yeah. And he just yelled, they're not going to hang me and walked out of the room. But he didn't leave then. He walked up the ramp, which is crazy because I went to William Reed Elementary School. I was one of the last classes that was there. Oh, I didn't realize that. I did. That was before. I didn't go. I didn't live in Hartford. Yeah. So instead of like a staircase, they had like a huge long ramp. It was crazy. It was like a ramp and then it flattened out and it was a ramp all the way down. Um, But he walked up that ramp and he went into another classroom and shot another teacher, 62-year-old Minnie McFerrin, also in front of her students. Roughly like 48 students saw their teachers get murdered. So as Principal Redden was walking out, 
he's threatening anyone who's coming out of their rooms to see. He threatened the custodian on his way out of the school and he drove away. And the teachers legit just told the kids to run home. They were just like, go, leave. There was a- Get the little, hell out of here. Yeah. And there was um, an article that was just interviewing one kid that had been in um, Mrs. Robson's class. And he said that he just started running. He didn't even stop and get his jacket or anything. He just bolted all the way home, which- yeah, who wouldn't? Yeah. I wouldn't have even waited for them to tell me. No. <laughs> I've been like, peace, gotta go. That's it. That's my cue to get the hell out of here. Put my Sonic the Hedgehog shoes on. Um, I found a Facebook thread in a Hartford City group. I feel like there's a million Hartford City groups. It really <laughs> There's so I many. I Hartford City. You guys are on it for your Facebook. <laughs> and like, <laughs> there's so many. Um, but I was so I was on a thread and someone had mentioned that they researched this case for an art project they worked on. And she said that when she was asking people about what happened, they got super angry and they told her that she was being really disrespectful for even asking about it. Uh, and I think because it was, I think she said she was doing it in like the early nineties. So it was still pretty close to home, you know, it had only happened like what, 30 years before. Yeah. So I thought that was wild. But anyways, Principal Redden, he drove to a wooded area about five miles south of town and he turned his shotgun on himself. Uh, it was about two hours after he had left the school and murdered them and no one knew where he went. No one realized he had killed himself and people were just panicking because they thought he was going to go on a killing spree. Yeah, I mean, he He just shoots two people randomly and then just like keeps walking and drives away. I don't blame them. So there's a manhunt for him by like 300 officers from all over and also a bunch of vigilante farmers, which I would 100% read like a graphic novel about vigilante farmers. That sounds so badass. And it reminds me so much of home. Like I would expect <laughs> yeah. nothing else coming from Harper's, Indiana, Harper's City, Indiana than like a group of farmers being like, we got this. Like with their pitchforks and their rifles and they're like, yeah. let's go hunting. Oh yeah, for sure. They uh, they found Leonard's car and he was in a wooded area and these farmers and the police, they surrounded the area. Uh, the newspaper called it a ring of steel because they all had like guns and stuff. And it was like, it's cheesy, but it works. <laughs> They uh, they found they found him. He was under some trees and he was dead. Uh, but what's crazy also is that he had a psychiatric appointment for that day and he had called and canceled it that morning. Mental health is a very crazy, scary thing. It's super scary. He um, he was a World War Two veteran and he said that he was physically and mentally scarred during war. His wife said that recently he had been imagining criticism. He was suffering from headaches and insomnia, and he thought everyone was gossiping about him. And they were saying that he was romantically involved with a woman teacher at the school, which is kind of explains why he went after the two women. Um, but she was so scared of what his wife was super scared about what he might do before that appointment that she hid all of the shotgun shells in the house. But before he canceled his appointment, he cleaned up his little work desk and he went to town square and bought more shotgun shells and then returned to the school and followed through. So when I, I heard about this story, I think like freshman year of high school. And that was how it was presented to me that it was like he was having an affair. That was, yeah, that was the rumor, but he wasn't, he just was imagining, or I guess he was delusional, you know, just thinking that all of these people, his wife (laughs) so eloquently quoted saying that he was just off his head. He just... Well, you would have to be. Yeah. You don't get into a profession like teaching or even like being a principal that's like an education background, you know? You don't get into that type of job if you're like, I'm going to shoot people in front of these students one day. Like I would yeah. think, I would hope that you wouldn't. That, yeah, this is a pretty yeah, he... gnarly... It's a gnarly case from Hartford. Yeah. It's just... You know, it was just kind of an example of how school shootings happen everywhere for like a million different reasons. And they really shake those like small communities that they happen Mm -hmm. in. And not, I guess it is school shooting related in in regards to this case. William Breed, now, if you have lived there, I had friends that like, it is haunted as F. It is, it's insane. Like I 
have heard so many stories and like you can like research it all the ghosts there has been so William Reed school like the apartments were made up into like the William Reed school apartments themselves and then there is like a annex almost of another like downtown building that was also William Reed schools and we will cover that murder at some point because there was a very gnarly murder that happened there where um a young girl and her dad were killed by like a crazy person. So like a crazy man. So yeah, it's not, it doesn't have a delicate history there. It is like now it's really, I mean, I don't want to speak ill about my hometown, but now it's a lot of drugs that are in those because they're low right now. They're like low income apartments and our hometown is like infested with drugs, meth, all that kind of meth and heroin pretty much run the town. And that is where a lot of it comes from. So, that's a yeah. very that's not speaking to everyone that lives there no, no, but no, no it is not... it's pretty and, gnarly there right now yeah it's unfortunate because they're very like the school it's a it's an awesome school like to see like it's one of the old i guess like old-fashioned schools like it's the architecture of it's great and it's just yeah, it's, it's really scary. pretty i don't like going there man i'm <laughs> now but i never i've never been in any of them as when they were apartments and i actually didn't really know i when you said they're haunted I like it brought back memories of people telling me mm-hmm. that it was haunted. Yeah. I was like, like really oh, haunted. Yeah. Like, like they saw the teachers in the hallways mm-hmm. after that happened and that Just kind like of stuff. roaming around and yeah, they, for sure. like one of the stories you hear is like, you see him just like, going from room to room. Ooh, I got you you goosebumps. Can I, I have too. Goosebumps. That is <laughs> ghosts. You give me the willies. I think you like murders, but you start talking paranormal and I'm like. I know. That's why I can't watch like horror movies because I'm just like Mm-mm. true crime has like been taken care of or is in the process of being taken. Like it's a tangible thing that we can handle. But if you start telling me about like ghosts and or like things that are paranormal, I will get scared or like horror where there's a lot of gore that scares me too. And I have a very black and white. I'm a very black and white person. I don't have a lot of room for to like imagine things. (laughs) And if I cannot actively explain it, I panic. And that is the feeling I get with anything ghost related. And I (laughs) it's scary. I can't do it. Okay. We digress. (laughs) We digress. Um, Another one of these small communities that was rocked by a school shooting was Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, when a man entered the West Nickel Mines Amish school and murdered five students, wounding five more, and then turned the gun on himself. Uh, That man was Charles Carl Roberts, and he was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, December 7th, 1972. And he had a pretty unremarkable life. His dad was a police officer. He was homeschooled by his mom. He grew up and lived in the tiny town of Georgetown, Pennsylvania. And he got married at 22 to Marie Roberts. And they had three children. Well, they had four children, but they had two boys and a girl that were all under seven in 2006. But their first baby was a girl and she died 20 minutes after birth in 1997. And Charlie... Charles was devastated. But, you know, I think in those situations, you move on the best that you can. Mm -hmm. He is described or was described as a loving dad that worked really hard and he was Christian and he went to church and... He was a good dude. Not what you think of. It's not. It's the worst. It's awful. I always, you always would like be like, oh, this is exact. Oh, I understand why he did this. He had such a horrible childhood. He had no. This is definitely another case of like a psych, a psychiatric, like a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. You just snap. So at night, he worked as a milk tank driver, um, which I had to Google, but it's like a tanker truck just full of milk. I didn't even know that exists. I, I was a little grossed out by it, honestly. But he uh, uh, he would he would pick up milk from the area's dairy farms, including several of the Amish farms. And it used to be like milk truckers were one of the ways that Amish communities would get outside news mm-hmm. because they went from place to place and they could tell you they don't have any you know outside information coming in. So. Yeah. Um, it's not as prominent as it used to be, but the drivers still chat with the farmers, but Charles didn't. He kind of kept to himself, which wasn't unusual. It was normal for him. But the week leading up to October 2nd, 2006, Charlie had become like unusually talkative and extroverted, much different than he had ever been before. 
The morning of October 2nd, Charles woke up and helped his wife get their kids ready and fed. He walked them to the bus stop. And when they got on, he actually called them back off of the bus and gave them extra hugs and told them that he loved them, which he was not in the habit of doing. So it was a little weird. That, yeah, I know. I know, know, I'm sorry. Back at their house, um, his wife, Marie, she was getting ready to leave for her Monday morning prayer meeting that she had every week. She was going to leave about 8.45. And Charlie was supposed to have a drug test that day, which he just had to have to like maintain his CDL. Oh, okay. I was like, wait. <laughs> drugs? No, he, di- he, didn't do- he didn't use drugs. He just had to take a test. Okay. So she left around 8.45. And after she left, Charles left five notes on the table. Then he went to his neighbor's house, which was actually his grandparents-in-law, and he asked to borrow their GMC pickup truck. He said he needed to haul some lumber, and once he had it in his driveway, he started loading it with supplies that he had been purchasing for weeks. Zip ties, a stun gun, tape, tools, nails, binoculars, batteries, flashlights, a 9mm handgun, a 12-gauge shotgun, bolt-action rifle, and 600 rounds of ammunition. Jesus. I know. He also... This part's gross. He had a tube of lube. He had actually two tubes of KY jelly. And he had a like this homemade structure he had built that was like wood boards with eye bolts screwed into them. And it, I think it was supposed to be like a restraint system where you would like trust someone up so mm-hmm. that you could like torture them, whether sexually or not. I'm not sure, but it's so pretty. would make that suspect. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Um, later, when they went through his tanker truck, they found a checklist of all of these things that he had packed and his reasons for packing each item. He had been planning it meticulously and he was thoroughly prepared for what he was about to do. Charlie drove toward the West Nickel Mines Amish School, but stopped short and parked near an auction house where he sat and watched all of the children playing outside the school before they began their lessons that day. There were also mothers, mothers with babies, pregnant mothers, older mothers, all there, and they all moved in also, which wasn't unusual at an Amish school. They help with lessons. They do stuff. Yeah, the original PTA. (laughs) OG PTA, for sure. Um, When he saw them moving into the schoolhouse, he drove the short distance to the school and backed the truck up to the front door over the gravel driveway. He walked in and looked at all of the faces watching him and said something inaudible. And the teacher asked, is there something we can help you with? And he asked if she had ever seen something like this. And he held up a clevis, which is like, it's a fastener bracket. It's like this and it has, it's like a horseshoe and it has a pin in it that keeps it locked. Like okay. That. Yeah. Uh, he walked back to the truck, loaded his guns, and barged back through the door, demanding that everyone go to the front of the room and get down. As the kids moved toward the front of the room, the school teacher Emma slid out the back door, and one of the mothers visiting the classroom slid out with her. Emma had hoped that the man pointing guns at her and all of her students hadn't seen her, but he did. And Charles told the room that someone needed to go get her or the shooting was going to start. And so a little boy ran after her. A few weeks before Charlie Roberts was in the schoolhouse, the school had actually developed an emergency plan in the event of something terrible happening. The teacher had escaped so quickly because they had practiced their safety plan and it was in place and she knew exactly what she was supposed to do if something like this happened. I don't think that this was what they were thinking. I think maybe what if a kid gets hurt? What if, you know, the the place is on fire? What do we do? That kind of thing. But that was why she was like, I gotta go. And she bolted. Oh, at first I was like, what the hell if uh, a stranger Strange man comes into my kid's school and the teacher dips out. <laughs> the shooter is going to be the leader of this. Well, you have to remember there were other moms there too. It's not like yeah. there weren't any adults there. There were. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, when I read it too, I was also like that. I was like, she just left all the kids. <laughs> I'm going to head out. I'm going to head out. So you, the guys, fact, you guys good? You good? All right. But the fact that she escaped immediately meant his plan was already unraveling. He had barely yeah. been in that school for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Just whatever. So 
Instead, he just looked at everyone in the room and said, I won't hurt anyone if you all just listen to me. He told all of the young girls to get on the ground. So they all got belly down and faced their head toward the blackboard, hoping that he will keep his word. If they, if we do what they say, or if we do what he says, then we'll all be okay. And he began zip tying all 11 of these girls one by one. But he didn't zip tie them all the same way. He Some he tied their hands and their feet. Some he just did their feet. And some of them were tied together. And I mentioned that one of the moms that was there escaped with Emma, the teacher. There were several others there and they were sitting to the side of the room and the boys were with them. So the girls were in front and the moms and the boys were kind of to the front side of the schoolhouse because it was a one room deal. One of the moms clasped her hands together and started silently praying and it kind of just inspired the whole room to start doing that. And when that happened, Charlie stepped out and started pulling in the supplies from his truck. And one of the little girls, a seven-year-old, began crying. And one of the heavily pregnant mothers laid next to her on the ground and tried to comfort her. I know. She just said, try to cry quietly, which like... I might tear it. I know. It's awful. It's so sad. Charlie made several trips. He brought in all the things from the truck into the school He even made some of those boys help him carry in those things. I know. What a bitch. Yeah. Finally, after he had retrieved everything he felt like he needed, he told the moms to take their toddlers and their babies and leave. He told them to get out. And as a mother would, they were reluctant because these other children were there. But everyone just kept thinking. He said, if we do it, he says, then no one will get hurt. So they did. And... After they were gone, he then told the 15 boys that were there they needed to go as well. They stepped out of the building and waited outside because some of them had their sisters inside. They didn't know what to do. So they just stood outside of the school praying, just waiting. Charlie went around the room pulling all of the shades down. And at one point, one of the shades spun all the way back up to the top because they were really tall windows. So he had to push a desk over to the wall and fix it. And one of the girls thought she heard someone say, now would be a good time to run. And she did. She was one of the girls whose feet weren't tied. And she just bolted out of the same side door that the teacher had escaped from. And Charlie acted like he didn't even notice. And maybe he didn't. Maybe he was just so preoccupied. He didn't know. But he... Did someone actually say that? No. (laughs) She just heard it. Oh, I have like goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) Same time goosebumps. I love it. Uh, Yes. No. No one had told her that. Um, There's her subconscious being like, yo. Yeah, she said she she believed it was an angel telling her that she needed to, to go, like now. Um, I could see that being a good. Yeah. He kept going. He continued around the room and he started nailing boards across the windows and doors. He was zip tying them shut. He completely sealed off the one room schoolhouse. And the girls were praying and he asked them to pray for him. And like, this is kind of the smoothest shit I've ever heard. But one of the girls said, why don't you pray for us? And I mentioned, (laughs) I just think that that's like the most passive aggressive kind thing you could say to someone who's threatening you with a gun. Like, will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? Why don't you pray for us? Because you're the one pointing your gun at us right now, you idiot. Yeah. Because he's he was. He was a church-going dude, right? He was a Christian man, apparently. But he told her that he didn't believe in praying. And then he offered all of the girls an ultimatum. If one of you lets me do what I want, I won't hurt the others. And there were two 13-year-old girls in the room. And the others were all younger. And one of the older girls understood what he meant by that. And she immediately started telling the younger girls, do not do it. Don't do it. Do not do this. So no one agreed. And he walked over and he grabbed one of their legs and tried to pull her and she kicked him off of her. And at this moment, this is what broke whatever barrier was between calm and chaos because they all started screaming. They were screaming for help. They were screaming at him. I would have just been like screaming like, ah! Yeah. But he suddenly stopped. He dropped the girl and he walked to the door that he had nailed shut because he could hear vehicles outside. And as I'm sure you and our listeners are aware, the Amish do not typically have vehicles. So he ran to the door and saw police pulling up to the schoolhouse. 
Some were already out. They were surrounding the building with their guns drawn. They were looking for a way to get in and rescue these 10 girls that are now trapped inside. And you know that like in this moment, he was like, I'm going to lose. Yeah. He'd barely been there, you know, and he turned to the girls and said, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Like, no, you don't. You could have just taken a board off and walked out. You would have done some jail time for like confinement or something. And yeah, you. I have to do this. So that moment, after he told them that, he took out his cell phone and called his wife. And he told her how sorry he was for what he was about to do. And he said he was mad at God because of their daughter. And then he told her that he had molested two family members when they were little 20 years before when he was 12. And he had been thinking about that and having dreams about doing it again. And again, like his plan had pretty much all gone to shit at this point. Because what what was he planning to do based on that, like rape all of these little girls and then just roll out? Like, all right, guys, thanks. Yeah, I'm wondering, I wonder if he considered or didn't consider that they would be able to call someone. And that's why he chose that school because he didn't think that they had phones. I mean, he came prepared and barricaded an entire room, so he couldn't. That actually, that really, that that makes a lot of sense. Because you would think that, like, if you pulled that in a, one, a big school, there's not just one isolated room. Yeah. It, like, it's a school. You can do this to one classroom, but there's going to be other classrooms who are either going to, like, charge at you or the police are going to be called before you can even start to do anything. Yeah. Um, I read some articles that talked about how, well, they speculated that he uh, wanted, because he was mad at God, he wanted to punish like his people, Christian girls. Yeah, little. Yeah, instead. But the teacher and leaders of that community had got to 911. They had um, phone shanties, which sounds hilarious, but they're just like little outhouses because they're not allowed in their houses. Mm -hmm. But the connections were not great in these phone shanties. Um, When they called 911, the dispatcher heard that there was a person with a gun at Nickel Mine School on on White Oak Road. And they transferred the call to the state police, but the line went dead. So the next call to 911 was made by Charles because now he's panicking that there's police everywhere. He's not going to be able to get out. He doesn't know what to do. So he tells the operator, I just took 10 girls hostage and I want everybody off this property now or else. And the emergency operator was very calm. She told him that he really needed to talk to state police. Could they please transfer him? And he was like, no, you tell him that's what I said. And that's it right now or they're dead. Two seconds Two seconds, that's it. And he hung up and he turned to the girls and told them, I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. Mm. I know. Inevitably, Charles' wife, who had just had that very strange phone call with him, found the suicide letters left on her table because that's what those five letters were. One to her, one to each of their children. And she was the next person to call 911 about what was happening. She said that she was worried that he was going to commit suicide. She had gotten very weird messages from him. He said that the police was there and she didn't know what was going on. And that conversation continued. (laughs) I don't know what the phone line situation is happening, what kind of phones we're having in Lancaster (laughs) County, Pennsylvania, but the line went dead again in this conversation. (laughs) So the police are there and they're putting these pieces together. They're like... Oh, one 911 call, two 911 calls, three 911 calls, and they're figuring out who's in there and what's going on. But inside the school, he realized that he had lost and he walked toward the girls with his gun pointed. And one of the girls shouted, shoot me first. And then the next one jumped in front and said, shoot me next. Like hoping to protect the little girls. Oh my God. I know. Sorry. I got tears. But he did. He shot them one, the one that asked first, and then the one that asked second in succession. And outside Mm. of the building, they could hear the shots one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, on and on and on and on. And the police like started banging on windows and doors trying to get in there. Charles blasted off a shotgun, shotgun round through the front window. 
And an officer used his shield to break the rest of the window around the boards and get through. But by the time he was in, the shots were done. And Charles Roberts was dead in the middle of the room, surrounded by 10 bleeding girls. Some were still alive, but there wasn't a desk, chair, or a wall in that room that didn't have bullet holes or blood on it. It was a mess. That seven-year-old who had been crying plus two others were dead on the scene. Some of the first responders were convinced that none of those girls were going to survive. And of the 10 girls, five of them died in the hospital. The youngest girl in the school, a six-year-old, was removed from life support and brought home by the request of her family. But as of 2016, she has never been able to walk, talk, or feed herself. The deputy coroner on this case counted two dozen rounds in one child alone. And she oh had, my God. I know she had to ask someone to come and like continue for her. And she quit her job. She said she was never, she could never go back to work after that. That was it. She was done. The school was torn down 11 days after the shooting as a symbol of moving forward. And a new school was built. It's named the New Hope School. And it was built as differently as possible. Layout style. And normally um, in those Amish communities, they have gravel or dirt roads, but the road was paved because it was initially it had gravel. But when the children heard people walking onto it or rolling up outside of it, they were having a very hard time hearing those noises. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, PTSD. So how many, how many kids total? Five, five girls died? Five girls died. Um, three for sure at the hospital, two were dead, announced dead at the hospital, but they were dead at the scene. And then the little, like the six year old, Mm -hmm. she is just almost like a vegetative state. Yeah. She's brain dead pretty much. Um, and we talk a lot in these episodes, especially when we talk about kids that like, if someone did this to our kids or even children like that, we love, like if someone did this at your kid's school, I would we would go to the ends of the earth to ensure that that person suffered for the rest of eternity. But the Amish community of nickel mines responded differently. One of the girl's grandfathers said that we must not think evil of this man. And one of the fathers of a dead student reminded everyone that in their eyes, Charles had a mother and a wife, and he was now standing before a just God, which... Also, kind of like they're so good at just like being nonchalantly badass. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I saw. I see the look. I see the look mm-hmm. on your face. I they, do not have that kind of grace. Well, they were obviously heartbroken. Yeah, they, they believed their religion may, caused them to believe that they must forgive this man that did this to their daughters. Um, and the night that it happened, after it had all happened, members of that community went to the Roberts' home and they comforted his wife and children because they had also lost someone dear to them, their father and their husband. And they went to his mother and father's house and his in-law's house and told them that they harbored no ill will and that they knew it wasn't their fault. I respect and admire that kind of outlook. I do not personally believe, I think I could, I do think I could look at his wife and children and be like, this is- That's not your fault. Yeah. That is not your fault. But I do not think I could comfort them because they lost someone. Because honestly, had he not taken his own life, I would have. Yeah. And, you know, in the outside world, because the media really like clung to this because that's exactly the thing. Like, how can you forgive someone who just did that to like the people most important in your life? Um, I saw a really interesting quote and it said, forgiveness is inappropriate when no remorse has been expressed and such an attitude risks denying the existence of evil. But letting go of grudges is just a deeply rooted Amish value that they have. So yeah. And I, we just talked about this last week with James. Yeah, that horrible case. And we always, we were saying there were two types of parents when like the, you have the set of parents who can be like, you know, we forgive you, let's move forward. Mm -hmm. Or the parents who hold that grudge and like both responses are appropriate. And I think it ultimately falls on whatever you have to do to get yourself and your family past that situation and past this tragedy. Yeah. 
I, I do believe in forgiveness to an extent, like I not necessarily like acceptance, like I don't think I would be able to be like, okay, yeah, this happened to me. Like, I, I don't know, I do think there has to be some sort of forgiveness that happens to find peace within yourself, not maybe not necessarily for them. I don't think I would ever if something like that happened to my children or any children that I love, I don't think it, I would forgive them for them, it would be like for my own peace. Yeah. And <laughs> like, because uh, yeah, they'll get they obviously got theirs, but they uh, the Amish set up charities and stuff for like Marie and her children and they don't normally normally Amish doesn't ex- they don't accept charity themselves but due mm-hmm. to them circumstances they did accept donations and today all of those charities for Marie and the kids and the families they raised over four million dollars oh wow yeah and they became well one of the families that little girl that was taken off of life supporting was pretty impaired her family became very close to Charles's mother um his mother invited them over and asked to help care for her in the months after the shooting and they had tea weekly until she died in 2017 so she helped take care of her and she bathed her and fed her just like you know their mom would I have such respect for people who can have that level of growth because I know I don't think I could. Yeah. It's I, I, hold I hope grudges. that we never have to find out. No, and I hold grudges for way less for way longer. So I just <laughs> I know this is true. <laughs> um, I know. It's just I think it's the so worst. hard when there is like last week, there's no reason. Like you can't say this is why he did this. Yeah. And, and I he had no history of mental illness. He had no history of like domestic violence, no criminal record, nothing. There was nothing to indicate that he would be like this. I'm going to get on like a rant for just a second, but this is why men's mental health is so important. Like why people cannot just assume that it is the wife who lost the baby, the husband, the father, they suffer just as much. And this is why the suicide rate among men, the psychotic breaks like this, it is so important for men to check in with themselves, to check in with each other. And for us, like everyone around them to break that stigma. Yeah, it is okay for men to have mental health issues. And to have feelings that are bigger than... You can't just assume because someone is a man, they don't suffer grief the same way that women do. Honestly, when they're not given an outlet to express that grief, it makes it worse because it festers and it becomes rage and then it becomes situations like this. Especially when they are the ones who are suddenly, they have to be the strong one, you know? Mm -hmm. They have to be the one who's tough for everyone when it inside they can't like they're not the tough one like everyone needs help it's time for people to stop it i think the biggest thing is like oh well oh yeah i know this happened to me as well this happened yeah like i'm one of those people who um it's the way i relate to people to try to be like hey i'm here for you i and it's not trying to like compare like be like oh my my grief is more than yours. It's to be like, hey, I'm someone you could talk to about this. Yeah. And I know that like, I have like really bad ADHD. And that's one of the personality traits, like I overshare. And it's not because I'm trying to like dim anyone else's light. But it's you can't just like assume because you would handle this okay, that someone else would. And yeah, you're that, just seeing yourself in that situation. Yeah. And you I know with like guys, a lot of times like it's check on your friends. Like if you're a guy right now, and you're listening to this, like check on your friends because I can guarantee you they are not doing as well. Like, especially it's, we just had 2020 with this pandemic. They're not doing as well as you think they are. Yeah. And ask specific questions like say, Hey, how are you feeling? Have you been feeling like sad or have you been, is there anything you've been angry about lately? You might think that's weird to ask those specific questions, but if you're just like, Hey man, you okay? Yeah. They're going to be like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? What's up? And like, I, again, like this is, this is not about this. I mean, it's about mental health. So like it it plays into this, like my husband went from active duty military last year to stay at home dad. And at first it was stay at home dad of three kids. Our daughter wasn't even two yet. And it was to me, like,
like I'm just as guilty because I assumed that it should have been fine because like I would have been okay. Like I would have been like, okay, great. I'm home with the kids. It's okay. Like I I can handle this. I didn't notice. And like, I didn't pay attention enough to the signs of like, oh my God, he's really struggling with this. And it wasn't because he was like not a great dad or because he could, he can't handle it, but it was kind of with everyone else in 2020, it was thrown at him. And I did not see how bad he was struggling because I assumed that he would handle like I would. And it's like, oh, hey, it's fine. Yeah. So you just have to, and like now we're at the point where I'm like, hey, you good? Like, do you need me? Is there something I can do? You have to check on your male friends because some of them are too embarrassed or they have, there's too much stigma. Preconceived notions of what they're supposed to be doing. And like Meg and I can both tell you that like it's, you have to check on them because one, you you don't want to be the person to be sitting there being like, oh, I have no idea why they did the way, like, I don't know why they did this. And then like, you feel like guilty when the signs were all there and you just did not see them. So Yeah, or you saw them, but you just figured it would get better. Yes. So that is my tangent on men's mental health. Well, it kind of segues nicely into this because he was afterwards psychiatrist that looked into this case. They determined he was going through a major depressive episode. Um, And the strange thing is that they interviewed those two family members that he claimed to have molested as children. And they were like, that never happened. Like, I have no recollection of that happening. Um, but it's like a psychosis. Exactly. It said when you're in those depressive episodes, you can feel a lot of guilt and upset about things. So if he might have done something as a 12-year-old that he felt was like inappropriate or bad or dirty, he could become fixated on those memories. And like mm-hmm. maybe he was afraid to do it again, like he told Marie on the phone. And it could drive him to decide that he would do something awful and then kill himself or that he needed to get it out of his system so that he could kill himself, stuff like that. It's hard to find sympathy for the murderer in this situation, but it's heartbreak. Like the whole case itself is heartbreaking. And like, it's just such a stigma. And especially like in the early 2000s, it's not as... I mean, it's only been very recently that there has been a big break and like, we need mental health care everywhere for everyone. Um, And I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that leading up to the shooting, remember, Charlie became like very talkative and outgoing, which wasn't his usual thing. Episode though. Yeah. He's feeling manic and he's like right in this high and then it's like... Yeah, that the people that were studying this case, they kind of believed that 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 time that was when he decided to do it. Like he and had, so he's like, well, yep, he had gone from just considering things and like buying stuff, making just in case lists, and once he was like, nope, I'm gonna do it. He they get excited and happy because they feel a release of pressure once they make like the decision. And that, that is the mental health is so scary. It is. And there's, there's just a huge disparity. You know, how do you go from hardworking church dad with a loving wife to considering raping children and then murdering a school full of girls? Like, those are two huge, scary and differences. It's hard, like, when you're looking back and you're like, he, I didn't see, like, I didn't see any of these things. I'm sure his wife. No, he told her. He said that the death of their first daughter destroyed him and he had not felt the same sense and he wanted to get revenge on God. But he didn't tell her that. (laughs) He didn't tell her that until it was too late, until he was on the phone already doing that stuff. So I don't know, maybe that like long, that long grief grieving period triggered that episode and he just spiraled. I don't know, but it's been 15 years and it still affects every single person that it happened to. I think it's so difficult to hear because we we live in an area where I feel like it's pretty like heavily populated by Amish mm-hmm. and like they're always so nice, so polite. Yeah. And and I know that I mean they're there are things that happen in Amish communities that are not cool. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to disparage that fact, but you're right. Like uh, the majority of them are very yeah. kind and helpful and they don't deserve this. No one does, you know? No, I think, uh, uh, and he planned it. Cause I agree with what you said. I think he picked an Amish schoolhouse because they couldn't get help yeah, and they were Christian like, girls is, or whatever yeah. the religion is. I'm not it's specifically like, sure. Uh, that's awful. And it's, even the, the first responders to this case, they were just, 
they were I, changed. I would, to, I would never be able to do my job again. Yeah, I mean, a coroner couldn't do her job. And how many like dead bodies has she seen? You know, it's just. Uh, again, so I mental health, you never know, like the actual struggle someone is having, like on the outward, like their outward appearance, they may be like, Oh, this, you know, they're outgoing, they're fun, especially that week leading up, like who would have thought, they're probably just like, man, he's really him. He's got a pep in his step. Look at him taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. His his wife, um, she wrote a very, I mean, it was heartbreaking, but it was a very uplifting book that talked about what happened and how she like felt and how the Amish came and helped her really find her life again after this all happened. She, um... At the funeral, the families of those children shielded her and her children from the press and essentially got them out. But that book is called One Light Still Shines by Marie Monville. She has since remarried. Good for her. Um, I also read Think No Evil, and that was from the Amish viewpoint of it. So um, one of the, I think it was the grandfather of one of the girls Uh, He got together with someone who used to be in that community but chose to leave the Amish lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that's by Jonas Jonas Byler and Sean Smucker. And there is a Lifetime original movie. I I did not watch it, but it's called Amish Grace. And it's based on another book about this case called Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. And that is really true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The biggest takeaway from this is the forgiveness because I I don't think I could. No, there were people that were saying that they were faking it. Like, you, you can't actually forgive it. No one can. But, you know, you didn't, you're not that person. Yeah, you can never tell someone else how to react to something. You cannot tell someone how to In the same way that we don't know how people are feeling just because we would react differently to them. Exactly. It's just kind of check on your friends. Even if you only have one or two people that you can really like know how like the goods or bads of what's going on in your brain. Like it's good to have, I know the, the cliche, like find your tribe, but it's important. Like it's important to have, even if it's just a couple people that you can really open up to because we're all struggling we just have different struggles yeah Mm, this breaks my heart yeah that's literally all i have too like that's the end of it that they forgave him there's no happy ending here other than that they all forgave each other and have since moved on with their lives and it has been 15 years now. This year is 15 years since it happened. I think any parent who sends their kid to school, it's like you kind of hold your breath a little bit until they get home. Uh, after day. I read this, absolutely. My kid literally goes to a one-room schoolhouse. And I was just like, what the? This is the worst. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this well, case? We moved from like the, we moved from a big town to where there was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids in each grade to a very small town. And the reasoning was like for the schools, like we're like, we want smaller schools, safer schools. And now you just blew that out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> the smallest, safest school is like that, that is safe. the definition of small school. Like you don't. I know. Oh uh, well, thanks for that. Well, hopefully they have good school counselors. <laughs> oh, actually, I can attest to that. They really do because they were. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> I know we don't even know what to say. That was a, just a glass case of emotion we just broke out of. It just. I don't understand the letting the boys go and keeping. I get it because his daughter died. Like so I, guess- I think that he intended to molest them. I think that that was his plan was to like sexually assault these girls. And I, I just don't think he thought that they were going to police were going to get there as fast as they did. I don't think he realized that people were going to get out. I'm sure he probably didn't realize that there were going to be extra moms with toddlers and babies there. He probably assumed it was going to be a teacher and then the kids. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Because also, um, they only go to school up to eighth grade. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, because they go out and they learn like a trade. So really, the oldest kids there are 13 at the yeah. oldest. Yeah. <sighs> I know. I don't I- like that at all. <laughs> I just snotted a little bit because I laughed. Well, I have nothing. You got nothing? 
But hey guys, if we're going to upload this, so you'll be able to see, see us. I don't know when or how, or if it's going to be late, but if you're um, listening to this on a podcast, we have started record video recording. Well, I mean, you are listening to it on a podcast. podcast. (laughs) If you're listening to this in your car on your way to work, just know we are video, like videoing. We're we're not streaming it, but we're recording as we do our show. So if... Mm -hmm. I, th- I noticed it a couple times that I like made motions to you with my hands that yeah, no one else will I, be able to see. And I'm just, you know what? That's what we're one doing day now. They will. One day they will be able to see it. Yes. But hopefully soon. We're trying to get our lives together, honestly. I know we talked about streaming, but we're thinking maybe maybe YouTube. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, because I'll be honest. We started this in October. We did not expect to have as many listeners and as many people that like us. Is It's kind of blown up a little bit faster than we were planning. So, Which we love, but it's yes, also like... love that you guys love listening to us every week. But we're trying to like make things like better for you guys and to do some cool stuff. We're trying to be professional. We're trying to be professional. But I think part of... Like, it'll be cool to, like, watch us record because part of the fun is, one, as you saw, like, my husband, like, walks <laughs> like walks back and forth. I know. I didn't know if I should stop talking because we were going to, like... Yeah, I had already told him, like, he could just go through. And then we mess up a lot. Like, I like I said, like, 90s. And, like, that's not... But you'll... You can see those things. Yeah, because when you, when you hear this, I spend quite a bit of time editing out all of our imperfections, which I'll be on. It's not, like, a lot. Like, we don't, like mess up a lot but we we've had like crying babies in the background we've paused for kids have woken up like bathroom breaks like water breaks it's we have a lot that goes on and you guys get the finished product so it's gonna be cool for you guys to kind of see it last week when i had to call connie her nickname that we use i just blanked for like a solid minute and a half because i did not i was just like welcome to gruesome connie uh and you'll get to hear every other week, <laughs> Megan being like, welcome to Gruesome. This is episode, wait. What, what episode is this? <laughs> what episode is this? I know, I'm so awful about it. I used to put, when I would write my scripts, I used to put the episode that it was. And the only I, reason I, I know it is because when we record, I have to type it in. Like, <laughs> program to record it. That's, the, that's it. I actually checked it. I checked our podcast before I came to this one. I was like, oh, it's this episode. And I'm like, it's not your intro day, stupid. <laughs> But yeah, thanks for coming. (laughs) Thanks for listening. That's it for today. Thank you all so much for listening to Gruesome True Crime with me, Connie, and Meg. We appreciate every single one of you. We truly do. If you actually like us and you're not just trying to seduce and murder us, you can follow along or see extras from the show on our Instagram at Gruesome Podcast. Or if you want to tell us our skin would make a nice lampshade, or if you have follow-up questions about the episode, follow the form on our website, gruesomepodcast.com, and email us. We love hearing from you guys. You can listen to Gruesome at the links listed on that website, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you normally get your podcast bill. Thank you again. Be sure to subscribe. Check your back seat before you get into your car. And remember that on Wednesdays, We're We're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.